So about two months ago, I began a series called Jesus, A Road Less Traveled. And I wanted to focus on what Jesus' disciples and followers uh, would have seen and experienced as they spent time with Jesus in real time and in real space. So I focused this first one on Jesus' servant heart. Mark 10.45 says, He didn't come to be served, this is Jesus, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Um, and, and so there's this idea that the first thing that I wanted you to understand and that I need to understand even myself is I need to be a humble servant because that's what Christ was. He's my example and I want to look like him and do the best that I can to look like him. But in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I always seem to be drawn into the stories the most. You know, uh, because I think when I read uh, the Bible from kind of a Western mindset, um, I, I think there's some difference that we miss of the Jewish context of what was kind of going on, the culture, and those kind of things. And there's some depth and beauty of God's Word that I think sometimes we can miss if we don't dig in a little bit further. Um, I like to put myself in a story, for instance. Uh, maybe I'm the soldier um, that's, uh, you know, I, I'm watching the crucifixion and I'm reading about it, and then I just put myself in the, the role of a soldier that's just kind of, he's, he's not one of the main ones, but he's just kind of looking up there. Or a bystander that is uh, going, man, what in the world am I getting in my hair? And all of a sudden looks up and, what are they doing? They're coming through the roof, you know, and, and just putting yourself in a different place of just saying, what would it have been like? to experience that in real time because these are real people. These are real stories. They're not fairy tales. You know, and when I observe it from that, I begin to maybe see some things or think about some things that I, I didn't really think about before. And so then I, I'm more engaged with the passage. Um, think of it this way. If, if um, most of you um, that are a little bit older, you know where you were when the World Trade Centers came down. You remember watching the news or the TV and hearing about it, and you, you can identify with that. Okay, and you're going, hmm, okay, yeah, I can, I, I can do that. But now that experience is one thing, but now put yourself in the position of saying, I was there. I was in the World Trade Center and escaped. I was in a building nearby. I was on the ground. Think about the sights, the smells, the fear. I mean, it would have been completely different being there, right? And so sometimes with the Bible, we've got to kind of put ourselves back into the story and go, whoa, okay, that's how somebody would have read that. That's how somebody would have understood that. So when we look at this, I, I, I just kind of think, wow, you know, Jesus' ministry on earth was only phew, a little over three years, maybe three and a half at the most. He had a lot to do. You know, we think we're busy. You know, and uh, Jesus had a lot to do. And it was, you know, and remember, it wasn't like Jesus could travel, say, from Capernaum uh, to Cana, and you're going, I have no idea where that is. Well, that's okay. I'm going to give you a little explanation. Um, in an hour, by car. Okay, Jesus didn't have a car. He couldn't do it. He would have to travel about 35 miles, and it would probably be at least a two-day journey. Okay, those are some well-worn sandals. Because anytime you look in Scripture, it seems like Jesus is coming or going from somewhere. He is along the road traveling. Boy, wouldn't it have been cool, you know, I just kind of think, man, it would be fun just to, if he, you know, if I could have lived back then and then just walked with Jesus and just kind of been just kind of watching, not really involved, but just overhearing and seeing and those kind of things. I'm sure they laughed along that road. I'm sure they cried along that road. There's so many things that we don't know, but we do know that what God wanted us to know is, is, is in his word. All these little towns, 
these big cities, all these sights and sounds. People wanted a glimpse of Jesus. They wanted to be a part of it. And I'm thinking, I would, be a, I would have been no different. In many cases, stories about Jesus were passed from town to town. And, and a lot of times, they didn't pass the most accurate information either. People wanted to see him. They wanted to listen to him. And many wanted to be healed by him. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm sure uh, I, would, I would have loved to just walk those miles. You know, and, and just say, okay. What is Jesus doing to teach me? What is he trying to tell his disciples? What does that mean to me? Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm on the road going somewhere, <laughs> I want to get there. That's, I want to get to my destination. That's my goal, okay? Um, I'm hoping that the, uh, the lights, are, I hit them just right, and uh, that the traffic is light and the drive through is short. Okay, I'll be honest, that's, that's where I want to be. And some of you are going, oh, I'm trying to do it too. Um, and things that slow me down frustrate me, anybody that knows me. I often find myself just getting to my next, next appointment on time. And I'm like, oh, man. So I'm doing the sermon prep, and I'm like, oh, are you kidding me, Lord? Seriously, you're, okay, yes, okay, yeah, I got to fix, yeah, I got to do a little bit better job here. I got to create some margin here. It's not that I don't have enough time. I've just got to be more intentional with it. And so what if I left a little bit early? I then now have an opportunity that if there's an issue alongside the road, if there's a person that I haven't seen in a while is in the waiting room that I get there, I can take a few minutes to talk with them. Huh. It's like, duh, Dave. You know, there, there's a thought. I got here this morning. It was great. Rick McClary was here from, you know, and he, get, he, he told me yesterday, he goes, yeah, I always get to everything early. And, um, and I just kind of chuckled. And, and then this morning, there he was. So then I had this great conversation with Rick for about 15 minutes. And I'm thinking, wait, he was here early. We had time to, con- oh, I see how that works. That's good. But sometimes we just get so busy. You know, when um. In Luke 9, 19.10, I think we'll sum up really what um, the essence of, uh, of what, what Christ was trying to do. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Nothing deterred him from that goal. He was all in and always going toward that. Um, Jesus was intentional about everything he did. However, in that intentionality, he never lost his, his love for people. He never um, set aside that priority to take care of people, to teach people, to maybe even admonish them, and then even transform their lives. But I think I find myself too busy, and I miss opportunities to love and care for people. I'm probably most guilty with my own family. That I can kind of listen, and I want to get back to me. And I just rush through things rather than truly listening and caring. So is the schedule, you know, so is the answer really to schedule less? I, I don't think so. Maybe it is for some people. But I think it's really just about adjusting, about being more intentional in what we do with our time. In the book of James, um, it reminds us of this. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist, or even a vapor they use, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say this. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. See, 
when we're intentional, we're typically going to accomplish the goal or task that we have in mind, or at least we're going to move toward it. When we're not, we're just going to spin our tires. You know, we're going to hope we get there. Well, hope isn't a plan, okay? And so the Apostle Paul, even in Ephesians 5, brings back this idea of God's will. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, or be making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And again, we see there, it's God's will that combines this together. And how do we do that? Well, in Colossians 3, 2, a verse that, I don't know, since high school has always kind of been one that just I focus in on and always can remember, Kylie, because it's just shorter, to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. It's as if we are laser-focused I mean, we are, we are so focused on Christ that all we do is going, okay, wait, is this what he wants me to do? I know the Lord's got a will for my life, but what is his will? Because once I figure that out, boom, I'm just going to go toward that. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But I'll tell you, it's going to be far more fulfilling. It's going to be far more um, impactful for the kingdom in eternity. So what does it look like when we create some intentional space in our lives? and allow for these interruptions. I saw this story just a few weeks ago, and um, I thought it just kind of, it just talks about what it means to just take some time. Go ahead, show the video. Yesterday, we told you about the Army veteran who stopped to help a stranded motorist that turned out to be former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Now the veteran, Anthony Maggard, is speaking out after his random act of kindness went viral. Annalisa Gale has that story in tonight's Yes Report. This selfie of retired General Colin Powell with Army veteran Anthony Maggart has now been shared more than 100,000 times. But it is the story behind it that's capturing everyone's attention. Powell wrote on Facebook that he was on his way to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on Wednesday when his front tire blew out. That's when Maggart pulled over to help. Then when I approached him, I just immediately said, your General Colin Powell. Maggart was also on his way to an appointment at Walter Reed and insisted on helping. He asked me, why, why, uh, why do you want to help me? And I said, well, you can wait around for a two-legged guy, but right now you got a one-legged guy who's willing <laughs> to help you right now. Maggart's leg was amputated four years ago after it was infected with flesh-eating bacteria in Afghanistan. He says even after retiring last year, he still has a passion for serving others. People say, oh, well, this guy went and helped General Colin Powell, but it wouldn't matter who it really was. In his note thanking Maggart for his kindness, the former Secretary of State left a message for everyone saying, quote, you touched my soul and reminded me about what this country is all about and why it is so great. Let's stop screaming at each other. Let's just take care of each other. Politically, there's a lot of tension, but for people just to stop what they're doing for a moment to be able to help somebody out. They both had an appointment at Walter Reed, and there they go. And one is like, you know, he probably had enough time. And even if he didn't, he probably would have pulled over. And I guess I'll, you know, take a chance with his appointment. He had no idea that it was General Colin Powell. He didn't really care who it was. He stopped to help. You know, do we do that? Um, I've led, man, I'll tell you, lots of youth group trips all over the place. I've had many family vacations, um, and I remember a lot of elements from that. But there's one trip in, uh, in general that I just remember that, you know, it was one of those things that it just was not me typically that would do something like this. We had a trip, my first trip that I was taking, 
down to New Orleans. Uh, it was over 20 years ago, and, um, and it was all ladies in the youth group and one adult leader. And, uh, and so that was a little interesting. But what was interesting is I, I took two days to get down. We had two hotel nights, and we do some training, do those kind of things, really want to prepare. Well, we had read a book about an African, uh, uh, um, African-American um, pastor, minister uh, from the South, and it was a book to kind of prepare us for the culture in which we were going to walk into. And, and he's from a smaller town in Mississippi. And, um, and so long and short of it is, you know, I'm going, yeah, we're doing, we're doing pretty good. And then, then, then that Holy Spirit does his thing and says, hey, you know, maybe you should go to that town. And I'm like, no, that's not really on the, on the path. I've got my trip tick, triple A, man, boom, we are good. And I've got my Rand McNally Atlas. We are set. We are going right there down Highway 57, 50, 55. And I'm like, no, that's what we're going to do. And then I look and I'm like, okay, seriously, this is going to take me about two and a half hours to do this and about 12 bucks. All right, Lord, we'll do it. And it ended up being one of those really memorable moments because we get to this town and all of a sudden it made that story of this man real. We stopped by the ministry center where he started it and what he had been found, that he had found it. And it really kind of set in stone that. And it wasn't in the plan. But God made it, put it in the plan. And it kind of changed our perspective and really set our attitudes and things that we were doing. You know, in Matthew 25, just prior to Judas' betrayal of Jesus, Jesus shares some um, pretty pointed words, and he wants to make, it, make a point. And, and so he does in Matthew 25, starting in verse 34, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous okay, will answer him and say, Lord, um, when, when did we see you hungry uh, and feed you? Thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did, when did we see you were sick or in prison and visit you? The king will reply, I truly, truly, I tell you this, whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. So the question asked is, when did, when did we see you? You know, Jesus answers that question by just flipping everything over on his head and talks about, it's about loving and caring for the physical needs of people. That's the first thing. And they're called righteous for doing that. I know I can fall into that trap, that, uh, but do we see Jesus' heart? He knows they need the gospel. He wants to seek and to save, and he seeks them out and then takes care of their needs and then says, you know what, then I'm going to share with you who I am. Teddy Roosevelt said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. It's a true statement. So let's not get into the trap of conditional love or care either. We need to do it out of the gratitude of what God has done for us. Matthew 5.16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, we're God's light in this world. And this world can look pretty dark. It bring, but ultimately, it always is to bring glory to God. It should never bring glory to ourselves as that will let pride really enter into our lives. But when we care for others... 
we become a servant, just as, God, just as Jesus calls us to be a servant. And what that attitude can do is then put, is put to work in us. You know, when we read the Gospels, and I always kind of think, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's over and over you see these themes. You'll quickly notice all the different places Jesus and his disciples traveled. They were in big cities, little towns, places that didn't seem to even matter. But the question is, when you go on a long trip, how do you usually feel when you're done? If you're like me, you feel a bit spent. Um, you want to get cleaned up when you're done right away, maybe lay down, get your feet up, whatever, maybe even eat something. But really, none of us are at our best, are we? But it wouldn't have been any different for Jesus and his di- disciples, would it have? I don't think so. I mean, two-day journey in sandals? They didn't have any New Balances or Nikes. You know, they didn't have any, you know, insoles to kind of make it feel a little bit better. It was a lot of work. They would have been tired. But what do we see? And I just want to go through just a couple cool stories. And, and I think when you look and you read in the Gospels, you see Jesus coming or going from a town. And usually there's a crowd that shows up. And what is Jesus' response to that crowd? Well, let's look at just a few of them. Luke seven eleven through 17, it says, Soon after, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples in a large crowd went along with them. Okay, they're on the road. Okay, and he's accompanied by a large group of people. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Well, this is basically a stranger to Jesus, most likely not a person of any kind of wealth. But Luke, the writer, and I love when Luke does this, adds a description that this lady was a widow and had just lost the person, her son, that would be taking care of her in her old age. Well, what is Jesus' response to seeing this? It says that his heart went out, or another translation says he has compassion Jesus enters the mess and brings comfort. He chooses to love this woman. He knew he could help, and he did. Then he went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother, as the disciples give CPR to those carrying the body, I'm sure. But imagine you were, you were there and you're going, there's no denying what just happened here. This kid was dead and he's alive. Okay, something just happened here. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. See, the woman knew that it could could have only been the power of God. So we know that. Even though they misidentified Jesus as a prophet, they did attribute the miracle to God himself. Now if we just go a couple chapters up in Luke 9, starting in verse 37, um, we, we, we read about this mountaintop experience. Here you have Peter, John, and James that go up with Jesus to pray on the mountain. And then all of a sudden he's transfigured and he's joined by Moses and Elijah and God himself in a cloud. And I mean... If you want to be blown away, that's just like, whoa, okay? And then here he is, okay? This is all taking place. And right after that, it says, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. 
It's like they're waiting at the bottom of the mountain. He went up, so he must be coming down. And they're just waiting. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to come. Look at my son, for he is my only son. A spirit seized him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I beg your disciples to drive him out, but they couldn't. Well, it appears that the people were waiting for Jesus right at the bottom, and immediately, boom, coming off the mountain, going down. I don't care if you're going up or down a mountain. I'm sure it's not the easiest thing. And boom, there are people. No rest for Jesus. Do you notice, though, the desperation in the Father's voice? He says, I beg you. Essentially, I plead with you. The man doesn't ask Jesus even to heal his son. He says, look at my son. It doesn't say in that passage, but it certainly implied that Jesus stopped and listened to this man. The story is also repeated in Matthew 17 and gives some other details. And we learn that the reason the Spirit couldn't come out for the disciples is because of their lack of faith. And then Jesus gives these words. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Probably not what you want to start when you do evangelism. That's probably not the words of Jesus you want to start with, okay? Um, Doesn't usually help. But it says, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the son was coming, the demon drew him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. I don't know about verse 41. That one kind of bugged me. I'm like, uh, you unbelieving perverse? Okay. And it says, well, those are some harsh words. And sometimes I think, uh, you know, as, at least as I was reading it, it seemed like he wasn't really directing that at the Father or the disciples. But I think it was almost like the Sadducees and the religious leaders and the Pharisees that were kind of like questioning, oh, really, do you have the faith? Your disciples couldn't even get out that demon. And I'm thinking, you guys couldn't either. You know, and so Jesus, you know, he's just saying, you you, you religious group, you are missing the point. But what do we see? Like the young man that Jesus raised from the dead, there was no questioning by anyone. They would have all agreed that the unclean spirit and the demons or demons-possessed boy, that these were actually what they were. And Jesus touched the dead man. He speaks and the unclean spirit immediately leaves the boy. See, there seems to be some kind of connection that Jesus even makes with the young boy's father um, and that boy. And I I bet you Jesus hugged that kid. I mean, it's not in the passage, but it just seems like he's there and he's like, come here, son, you're free. And then again, we see people give glory to God. But what do we see? Jesus steps into a situation. He sees a need and he makes an intentional choice to enter into that situation. I think again for us, that is our example. I think many times I will see a situation and I hope someone else might step in first. Maybe I'll just kind of go a little slower and hope somebody else will take care of it. Or I'm coming along and going, come on, somebody do it. I don't want to be the one, but if I have to. But why aren't we the ones that just step in? Because you know what? Sometimes we don't want to get the dirt on us. Sometimes we don't want to get messy. In Luke 17, we see Jesus traveling to Jerusalem and he's met outside town by ten lepers. And uh, they yell to him for help. And what does it say? You don't come there. I mean, Pastor Brian just talked about the lepers, or the leper that he healed. And Jesus Jesus come near to them. You don't come near to the lepers. They're outside the city for a reason. And then he says, hey, just go to the priest. It doesn't even necessarily say that he touched him, but he, you see he comes near. He makes a personal encounter with him, and then says, hey, go to the priest. 
And as, as they were on their way, they were cleaned. Only one came back to say, thank you, Jesus. But same formula. Jesus sees a situation and makes a choice to step into the mess. But he knew he had something to offer. Or Luke 18, just one chapter further. Jesus is traveling to Jericho, and a crowd is around him. And a blind beggar asks, what's going on? And he's told that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The blind man begins and yells, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him even in the midst of the crowd and stops and enters this man's world. He has nothing to offer Jesus, but that doesn't stop Jesus from healing the man. Jesus again saw the need and responded. And what followed? Praising God. See, it doesn't matter how busy Jesus was where he was coming from or going to. He stepped into people's lives and helped. He showed love and mercy um, wherever he went. Can you think of a time that Jesus ever rebuked a sinner and publicly shamed them? I mean, think about it. I, can't, I, I can think of times that he did that to the disciples and religious leaders of the time. But remember Jesus' purpose, to come and seek and to save the lost. That means he went looking for the lost. He stayed among them. Is that our tendency? Or do we find comfort in our holy huddle? Enough, you know, and, and just saying, hey, this is, this is good right here. Have you guys ever heard of the Good Samaritan experiment? Any of you? All right. It was back in 1978, so maybe you didn't, um, before the Internet. But, um, but there's, a, a, there's an interesting story. Um, so if you know the Good Samaritan story, essentially you've got um, a, a man that is along the road that is injured. Um, he is obviously uh, he is a Jewish man. And then you've got three people that are going to come alongside. The first two are people you would assume. They're, from, they're of Jewish descent. You would think they would be people that would help him. The third person is a Samaritan. And uh, the Samaritan really wants nothing to do with Jews and doesn't care about Jews, and they're really almost basically enemies. And, they, and what do we see? The good Samaritan, the Samaritan comes by and not only helps this man, but then puts him up in a hotel-type thing and then makes sure he has the money to give them. And then if it takes even more, he says, let me know and I'll pay you more, whoever's taking care of him. He went beyond. And it was interesting that they thought, you know what, how does this work in real life? Do, do we act like the Good Samaritan? And so they had this uh, experiment that they constructed on a, on a campus. And the experiment, the researchers did this. They had three hypotheses. One was people thinking about religion and higher principles would be more inclined to show helping behavior to, uh, than a layman, so somebody that's a volunteer, not paid. People in a rush would be much less likely to show helping behavior. Or the third thing is, is people who are religious for personal gain would be less likely to help than people who are religious because they want to gain some kind of spiritual or personal insights into the meaning of life. So these religious study students on a study course were re recruited for this experiment. And they fill out questionnaires. They did all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, here's what it came down to. Go from one side of the campus to the other. Some of them had a lesson just prior to that to say, hey, you're going to be teaching um, um, this class next week or um, in about 15 minutes about the Good Samaritan. You guys over here, you're going to be teaching on whatever topic it would be from the Bible. didn't matter, but it was a biblical topic. And then they, so they gave some to do that. And then they, they gave other people, okay, says, well, you've got to get there in 30 minutes. You've got 30 minutes. Oh, you have two hours. And they give different people different times and all these different scenarios. And basically what they found out was this. 
didn't matter what religious background you were from. What mattered was how much time you had. If you were busy, you were a one in ten chance that you would stop for this person that was along your path that you walked right by that was definitely in need. And need had an injury. And you just walked right by. I think for us, we've got to think, are we willing to enter the mess? Are we willing to just even open our eyes to what is in front of us? That coworker, that neighbor, that person in line that's just struggling and you can tell. Are we willing to step into it? A lot of times we don't step into it. Why? Because, oh boy, it's going to probably mean some time and it might even mean I have to sacrifice some money and I might get a bad reputation. And, and we start going through all these things rather than going, wait, God wants me to enter this so that I can help in this situation. Jesus isn't calling us to help everybody. He's calling us to help the people that we see in front of us. There's a song by Brandon Heath that um, you know, I've always enjoyed because I think the chorus just states kind of the mindset and I kind of use it as a prayer. It says this, Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. Everything that I keep missing. Give your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. Don't think of an interruption in your day as something that should frustrate you. But look at it as an opportunity to walk the road with Jesus and respond just as Jesus did, using the gifts and talents and skills that he's given you. We need to pray that God will open our eyes to what is right in front of us typically. We don't have to look all that far. You know we're created for this. Because Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's handiwork or workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's make Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost our mission.